Kavitha Charuma on SAFM. And it is Night Talk once again. I'm in for Oliver Dixon. Uh, our first conversation, we are going to speak to um, Isabel um, uh, Freire. He's uh, is the founding and executive director of Social Policy Initiative. And just to recap from last night, uh, in case you, you were listening to the show, but if you were not, not to worry, because I'm going to give you um, the background of um, our situation. A broad coalition of civil society organizations basically uh, fired a salvo at uh, our President Cyril Ramaphosa ahead of the State of the Nation address, um, urging for strong leadership, very strong leadership. Uh, that embraces bold transform transformative measures to navigate the country towards a future where equality, care, well-being of all citizens are paramount. So in this historic moment that we are all witnessing, um, you know, they, they say that they are calling on... On, on, on the government, I mean, on government policies and implementation efforts behind the needs of the country's uh, marginalized people and place these at the center of SONA and calling the government to speak with one voice, coherently advancing and funding state policy priorities. And, um, you know, these would ensure that the advancement of constitutional rights is prioritized in key government plans and budgets. But let me introduce our guest, Isabel. Good evening and welcome to Night Talk. Hi, Bertha, and thank you so much for the invitation and good evening to all your listeners. So what challenges have you learned over time doing research on marginalized communities in the country and what policies need to be to be in place? It's, um, how long do we have to talk? So, uh, <laughs> <Not> long. <laughs> no, I will try. I will be succinct. So. South Africa, we need to remember, especially years into democracy, we came from decades, uh, generations and centuries of oppression and exploitation and expropriation, where the policies of colonialism and apartheid deliberately prevented the majority of people in South Africa from being able to take control of their own lives and livelihoods. Under apartheid, there was job reservation. Jobs, certain jobs were reserved for whites. Um, the higher paid ones and people of color were only allowed to perform certain lower um, skilled and, and therefore lower earning jobs and also assets. That's also a really important thing further from our research. The accumulation of assets, the ability to um, inherit assets from your parents and so build on what they've accumulated is essential. Now, none of that was allowed for the majority of people in South Africa. 1994 happened, um, and the president was right. There have been some significant achievements in terms of setting aside the apartheid laws, the civil and political laws where people can move and things like that. But that's the basic, that's that, that's really the baseline. What we're talking about is the well-being of people, the accumulation, the poverty. Um, and so what we've seen right now is that South Africa is the most unequal country in the world. I mean, that's it. There's, there's, there's no um, arguments around that the World Bank has confirmed in terms of income and in terms of unemployment. We've also seen that that South Africa has the highest unemployment rate. So our unemployment is not a situation where we're going to come out of. The question then is what happens? Now, the president in his sonar spoke um, 
very correctly about the fact that five years ago the national minimum wage was introduced. I sit on the National Minimum Wage Commission and was part of those negotiations. That was an excellent example of three years of political will where people were brought together who didn't want to have this happening. Some of them, others wanted a much higher one. We compromised, we negotiated and each year. We just recently, last week, um, to be, uh, come into effect on the 1st of March, negotiated another increase. Six million workers had their incomes um, brought up to a, a, a much better level, not quite living level. So that could be done because there was political will. Then comes uh, COVID-19. Nine million people, unemployed adults, suddenly started receiving the 250 grant, the, the social relief of distress grant, which was meant to be a six-month interim uh, policy. It, in effect, can't really be withdrawn now because people have realized that it is possible. What we're saying to the state is, you have shown that you have the ability to do it. We know that the huge levels of inequality mean that there are high levels of, un, um, of idle wealth, which could be utilized to ensure that people have enough to live on, but also that the economy ticks over. Because, Bertha, don't forget, if you have such extreme levels of inequality, the majority of people are not able to be active consumers. And so if you're not consuming, there's no demand. Demand means that factories are, our factories are at 20% over, uh, under production because there is no demand. That's as a survey quotes that. Um, so we, we, we've got a highly dysfunctional society. The social, uh, the, the SONA, the end of the sixth administration in this election year, could it have done something better? Definitely. We anticipated that there would be a much more courageous commitment um, to ensuring that basic income for people who not only were unemployed, but also underemployed. And that's why with other civil society organizations, we're saying a universal basic income grant that gets paid to everybody at a significant level of the upper bound poverty line, 1,500 meets basic needs, but also enables every person who gets that to start purchasing. So you can buy from your neighbor who's got a micro enterprise in the township economy. You can take a taxi in order to look for a job. You can start investing in the future, borrowing, I mean, some of our research, for instance, we were speaking to an informal builder who could get credit from um, a hardware store because the hardware store owner knew that he was getting another 350 the next month. That was taken away um, for a reason that he couldn't understand. And suddenly all his ambitions to building himself up to becoming a, a micro-entrepreneur were dashed and it was outside of his control. So we were hoping that the president would use this opportunity to not just give the very vague promise about an extension and improvement, mm. um, but actually saying this is what our promise to our people is. Yeah, um, Isabel, I, I, I just um, Isabel, just stay, stay, you know, on 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 that uh, for a moment. Stay aside on for a moment. I've got um, Sidisa also online, but whilst you are, up, uh, you know, on the other side. Um, it, it will be interesting to know uh, so that, you know, our listeners are, are well versed in terms of our conversation. The minimum wage. What What is the minimum wage now? And I, I would also like to come back and really tackle the 350 uh, when we get back. But let me just uh, introduce uh, our other guest. That's Matsidiso, who is um, on the other side. Good evening and welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Good evening to all the listeners. So yesterday we had our conversation. So what was your take of Sona this evening? Where where did you were you fulfilled with the speech? Your expectations were they met? So I would say that um, exactly what we had spoken about yesterday about 
the SONA for many years making uh, bold political commitments, uh, some of which, many of which we have welcomed. Um, unfortunately, when you have such bold political commitments, it ends up seeming like uh, a, a political um, comment and not actually translating into the real um, lived experiences or translating into the realization of um, these human rights and, and these commitments because the funding um, and the resources that are needed to realize those are not actually allocated. So once again, yes, to say there's a nation address, um, the president has reflected um, on the some of the achievements that have been done over the past 30 years, not just between last year and this year, and also some of the areas that need to be improved. Um, and, and we welcome that. However, we are, there's concern among civil society that if in order to continue this or to accelerate the um, the level of achievement to eliminate um, inequality, um, unemployment, and poverty, we can't um, we can't actually realize that without if we have a budget speech in the next two weeks that contradicts that that actually underfunds some of the interventions that are um, meant to achieve that. So we are looking at. Um, the things that are mentioned, so ECD being a priority, early childhood development being a priority. We're looking at um, the gender-based violence and femicide interventions being highlighted as as key interventions, and just looking to see in two weeks' time, or in yeah, in less than, in just over two weeks' time, will we have a budget? Will we have enough resources to actually um, fund these? commitments that the president has made. Mm. We're having quite an interesting conversation at this point. Um, Isabel, I, yes. I I was just I'm asking so that I can, I, can, I can really understand and put things into perspective. The minimum wage, what are we looking at, at as we stand? Well, it depends on how many hours you work, but we're looking at it's now going from the, 20, from the 1st of March, it'll be 27 rand 58 hours as a minimum wage apart from expanded public EPWP um, who are not defined as workers but for everyone who's defined as a worker um, the hourly rate is going to be 27.58 so if you work 40 hours that comes up to around roughly 4,400 rand uh, per worker per month which is at SPY we've done research into what is a decent standard of living defined by ordinary people and we've done a number of, of sort of methodological calculations and that comes up as a decent standard of living is 6,000 rand per person per month so, so for someone who's working to earn two-thirds of a decent living level uh, is quite phenomenal because it means that that person has generally we've got a dependency rate of between 8 and 12 on the poorest workers so that's how many people depend on that wage mm. if we had a um, universal basic income, which meant that every person was getting an income, that would bring significant relief to the lowest paid workers. Because from those workers' um, salaries, we then are looking at school transport, we're looking at transport to look for jobs, we're looking at uh, electricity, as, as well as all the fundamental food items. We know that food, which is the item that lower income workers uh, or people spend most of their incomes on has got an inflation rate of about 12 to between 12 and 15 percent it's significantly higher than cpi um so the that ability of people to make do on a daily basis is becoming eroded if you remember last year bertha the uh, president in the sona 
promised that in order to address the cost of living increase uh, that the world was seeing, that both the 350 grant and other grants would be increased to keep pace with inflation. What we've seen over the years with our social security grants is that they haven't kept pace with inflation. So those people who have a grant are able to afford less and less. I mean, the 350 grant itself hasn't increased since 2020. So that's lost about 19% of its purchasing power. Um, although nominally people have access to income, what that income can purchase, and therefore what that purchasing power can do in order to stimulate income, um, economies in depressed and rural areas uh, is really what we're saying. The state is losing a huge opportunity. We talk about uh, stagnant economic growth. If we invest at grassroots level and ensure that people are able to start effectively working themselves out um, of the, the current levels of poverty. That's the way to go. It's not going to happen from a trickle-down, top-down effect. Um, but we need, we need policymakers to not only hear the human rights argument, but also to hear the economic argument. And we haven't seen anything better placed on the table. Mm. And I, 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 I saw that, you know, the president did defend the country's increasing social welfare bill with over 25 million South Africans relying on the government for, for, for various social grants and basically sticking to that number, which is the 350 rand, 350 rand as, you know, to, as a relief of distress grant for unemployment. And the SPI strategy paper on universal basic income mm. released in January 2024 proves how a decent universal basic income, you know, can come in handy. But I just look at the 350 and, and, and when I look at a, just a basic basket for anyone to survive, that's like a drop in the ocean. Absolutely. A, a 350 will not buy a loaf of bread every day for a month for a person. The food poverty line, which StatSA calculates, which is based on the amount of money it costs for a person to survive, is 760 rand. So the 350 is less than half of that. Uh, and our argument with the Ministry of Finance and, and other um, decision makers is there's a certain cutoff level if you give too little money, you're actually not enabling it to multiply. Recent research in Brazil has come out with a 42-country study that shows money spent on Social Security, especially in unequal countries, has an incredible multiplier. For between five and seven times um, it gets used, it gets increased from that initial rand or unit or, or peso uh, that is spent. So. Those, that's the kind of empirical evidence that we need our decision makers to be looking at. And that's what our strategic uh, policy paper says. It demonstrates through econometric modeling that if you spend enough, the impact that it has, the stimulus that it has, if we roll out a universal basic income grant, first in the year one at the amount of the food poverty line, uh, 760, and then the next uh, year, 1,058 grand, and the third year, 1,500 grand, the stimulus in that can generate self-financing up to 96% because people will be buying, more of that will be increased, uh, will be spent and then taken back into the government coffers. If we extend that to children, so the child support grant amount gets um, captured into that, the positive multiplier is such that the state will start recouping that money because we are not able to, in order to um, generate those kind of economic activities, because we're not going to be creating jobs for 11.7 million people overnight. Mm. Everybody in this country has a right to equality. What are we doing to use the wealth of the country? Um, and the research paper demonstrates very clearly 
if you make the bold decision, if you spend enough on every person. Uh, right now, because of the means test, if you use your 350 grants, we've made a, a wonderful documentary with UNICEF on beneficiaries. People started using that money. As soon as they started using it, the money was taken away. Yeah. What kind of, if you penalize people for, um, for, for uh, making money, uh, being an entrepreneur rather than incentivizing. Why not say, take the 350, if you manage to double it, we'll give you another 200 grand. Incentivize people to become developmental in the state of ours. Instead, what we say is, we are, we give you very little and we take it away as soon as you use that to benefit further. Yeah, and um, let me come back to you, uh, Matsidiso. You you did highlight that, you know, uh, the budget speech will most probably help you to decode or should I say understand or really see the, the bigger picture, whether your needs will be met. I mean, your expectations, what would be the ideal, you know, situation that you'd like to see? You know, because sometimes we, we get lost in translation and, and, and we say so many things, maybe three pointers where you say these three things are very pivotal. If if they come through, then we know we are on, on track. Yes. So um, to think about like three things, I think the first thing that um, we, an expectation that we look at and consider that would be a success for the budget speech would be for a budget that actually recognizes the lived experience of people in this country, be it the introduction of participatory human rights impact assessments. So whether it be um, the allocation of the budget or the decisions that are made regarding financing education, financing healthcare, um, financing um, the social development have to be considered, um, there, there's a, enough consideration on how people in this country are currently living, how far does that 350 get you? Maybe we should be increasing it as um, Isabel eloquently um, suggested. You know, those are the kind of considerations that we're looking to see in the budget. Another aspect is definitely the reversal or moving away from a fiscal consolidation approach to the budget. So moving away from a budget that um, prioritizes spending, um, servicing the debt of our country as opposed at the expense of investing in adequate education, healthcare, and social development in this country. And then, of course, um, a, a budget that is actually gender responsive because the issues that are mentioned uh, by the president in the state of the nation address of inequality, of unemployment, and of poverty, yes, they impact the majority of people in this country, but it has been found that the, these impacts are disproportionately carried um, by women because, for example, with poverty, there's been a phenomenon um, called the feminization of poverty where the poverty gap between um, men and women who are living in, and below the food poverty line has been increasing over the past decade and it's only getting worse. Um, so there's a feminization of poverty and this extends also to um, unemployment. As we know, um, there is a report by the human, the HSRC that dubbed um, the face of unemployment in South Africa being the young black woman. And of course, we know that there's extensive rights gender inequality that continues to plague our country. And so a gender responsive budget is something that we call on and something that has been promised by Treasury um, for the past few years. And so in order for us to feel truly satisfied that we're on the right track to the country is a budget that really reflects the human rights um, and the lived experiences of people in this country. And we can really only do that if we have, if it's gender responsive, if there's 
participatory human rights impact assessments. And of course, if there's enough resource allocation to areas like education, healthcare, and social development. Mm. And I think in, in wrapping up, I think I'm going to um, come back to you, um, Isabel, so that we can we can wrap up our conversation. Section 27 is a public um, interest law centre that advocates for um, access to healthcare services and basic education. Do they welcome the president's reaction to the latter? Are you asking about Chidisa from Section 27 or me from SPY? Well, I'm just, I think maybe I should, maybe my question should be in reaction to, to, to the de- deliverance yes. of the speech. Um, so Machidiso from Section 27 was giving that much broader um, approach because they have a wider remit in terms of education, healthcare, as well as social grants. From SPY, our, our analysis is we recognize the strides that have been made since 1994, we, however, are very worried about the trajectory of increasing poverty and unemployment and the absolute failure to recognize the extent of the crisis, not just for today, for what this means for the future. Um, and we are also very disappointed in the inability or in the failure of the state to use this opportunity to end the sixth administration by announcing the introduction and commitment and the budgeting uh, towards a decent universal basic income of 1500 per person per month. Mm. Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining me. And um, Matsudiso, actually, you had answered me in that, uh, in you know, in relation to that particular section. Mm. You had actually <laughs> given, you know, you had really tied it up beautifully. But thank you so much for joining us this evening and having this conversation. Let's hope that what we talk about and, you know, and what we put on paper becomes a reality. Because talking, I think people are becoming a little bit lethargic from conversations over conversations over conversations. But thank you so much for making time this evening on Night Talk. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bertha. Cheers, Bye-bye for, for now. That's um, Isabel, um, Isabel Freire, uh, founding and executive director of Social Policy, uh, Policy Initiative. I started the conversation with her. And then uh, Madsi Diso, uh, uh, Lenwasa also joined us a bit later on, and um, she's from Section 27. And also just to give us a, 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 a rounded perspective as to their expectations. And I'm quite interested to hear after the budget budget speech, what then will happen, whether, you know, their expectations will be fulfilled. But that would be an interesting case. Still to come, uh, we still have um, Zuelin Zimavavi's, um, you know, comments in regard to unemployment. That's also coming up shortly. And also we speak to one of our guests, that's Roger Jardine. Change starts now. And Change Starts Now kicks off 2024 election drive with pledge to make South Africa work uh, and to restore dignity uh, to its people. The unemployment rate is alarming. We cannot uh, say this sitting down. But anyway, your views, your opinions, absolutely welcome. Um, 086-000-2032. Or you can send us a voice note on 0614104107. And also just to remind you that as from um, 11, um, the lines will be open for whatever comment you would like to make. Maybe you would like to make a comment in regard to SONA or anything that is on your mind that you'd like to share with us right here on SAFM. Let's take a small break. We'll be back.